0: You know, you can, you can force obedience, but you can't force love. You ever thought about that? You can force obedience, but you can't force love. Anybody that has ever given a dog medicine knows this to be the truth. My dog, she has the superpower when it comes to taking her medicine that I can get one of those little, I mean, tiny pills, and I can cover it in peanut butter. And she can eat it and find a way to get all of the peanut butter and then spit out the pill. It's a gift. It's a gift. And so my dog, the only way that we're able to give her medicine is to wrestle her like an alligator, right? You stuff the pill in her mouth and you hold her jaws shut until you've realized that she's finally swallowed it. We know the same thing if you've ever uh, tried to give chores to a child. You know that you can force obedience, but you can't force them to love it, right? You're doing math homework, and you've went over. and and How many times have they gotten up from the table? Like, like for real? How many times have they gotten up from the table? It's awful, right? Uh, They, they, every. You know how many times my eight-year-old has to go to the bathroom during math homework? It's really amazing. And so up and down, up and down. And then finally you're like, I am not trying to make you do your math homework because I hate you. I want you to do your math homework because I want you to not embarrass yourself when you're balancing a checkbook, right? So you can make them do it. You threaten them within an inch of their life. You, you ultimately make their lives totally miserable. But you can make them do it. But you, you can't make them love it. You can force obedience but you can't force love. And the difference between begrudging mechanical obligated obedience and passionate loving zealous obedience is a massive one in the context of the Bible. That this is this gap is the difference between uh, but this gap between obligation and love is the difference in the scripture between blasphemy and worship that if I serve God out of obligation, if I serve God because I'm forced to, if I serve God because I have to, if I serve God because I'm being made to, then I am trying in some way to win his favor. I'm trying in some way to raise my standing. And by doing that, the good things that I do actually bring offense to God. Because they don't worship him. They don't Value him. They don't see him as the natural outworking of everything good in my life, as a as a pleasure, as a as a as a cheerful, zealous opportunity to obey. But in my life, when there is a passion, a deep-seated passion for the glory of God, when there is a, a deep-seated passion, passion for the things of God, when there is a passion to bring honor to His name and to bring pleasure to His person, when there is a a desire for others to to see Him and an energy within me to, to carry it out, the smallest actions, the smallest things that I do become acts of worship. The smallest things that I do become offerings to Him. So it's an ironic thing, isn't it? That two people can do the exact same thing. Two, pe- two people can try and in their life have the exact same obedience. And for one of those people, it, it is blasphemy. And for the other person, it is worship. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. What I want us to see this morning is that Jesus came to overcome this gap. Jesus came to overcome this gap between us and Him, between blasphemy and worship. This, this gap between obligatory mechanical obedience and passionate, energetic, zealous obedience that is actually worship to the Lord. Last week we saw how there are three different divisions of the law. There's civic law, ceremonial law, and moral law. And what we saw was is that Jesus fulfilled all three. That civic law and ceremonial law have been totally satisfied. And there is no need for those things in, now in the life of the New Testament church. But the moral law, because it's not founded in Moses, but is actually founded in the character of God and who God is in the created order, that the moral law carries forward. But what I want to, if you watch uh, College Game Day, On Saturday mornings, you know, Lee Corso, I kind of want to do my best Lee Corso, but not so fast, my friends. Not so fast, my friends. Yes, the moral law carries forward, but no, the moral law doesn't carry forward. Here's what I mean by that. The moral law is still a condemning law in the life of sinners, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'm still tempted to be jealous. I still find in my heart the room for bitterness, which Jesus says is murder. I still find in my life a propensity toward lust, which Jesus says is adultery. That in my life, I still find myself not worshiping God with all of my heart and with all of my mind and with all of my strength. That in other words, I am living my life filled with idols, Probably if we all were to go through the the Ten Commandments, every single one of us would be guilty of every single one of them. So the moral law carries forward, and maybe that helps us begin to categorize them, but the truth is, is that this still isn't good news. Because in the old covenant, the moral law was giving us stipulations as to how you could retain the favor of God, as how you could retain the presence of God in your midst, how you could retain His kindness in your life, His provision, His perfection, His, uh, His protection, His direction in your life. But the truth is, is that what Israel discovered over the whole of the Old Testament and what all of us have found to be true is that we are not capable of upholding them. And so if that is the stipulation for the, for the presence of God and the favor of God in our lives, we have no hope. And that's where the new covenant comes. That's where the new covenant comes. This morning, uh, Andrew read from Jeremiah 31, that most famous new covenant passage. And that what I want you to see is, yes, the moral law carries forward, but the moral law carries forward, but in a greater way. In a greater way. That the moral law carries forward in the New Testament, but it is no longer the law of Moses. That in the new covenant, it becomes the law of Christ the law of Christ. And the law of Christ supplants the law of Moses in every way and is greater than the law of Moses in every way because it is able to overcome the gap between my unfaithfulness and my obedience and my desire for the presence of God that Jesus overcomes these things. So where we might see that the Mosaic law, the original moral law are the stipulations of the old covenant. How we might retain the favor of God. What we're going to see is that the law of Christ in the New Testament is the expression the expression of the covenant. It is the expression of the newfound passion and zeal and transformation, the expression of the Holy Spirit taking residence in my life. And so what I want us to look at this morning is the nature of... Of the law of Christ. And look, y'all, I realize the last couple of weeks we've been in the deep end a little bit, but I'm telling you, this is where we have to be. If we want to be able to respond to this generation, if we want to be able to disciple our children to respond to this generation, we've got to have the underpinning. We, we, we've got to have the foundation. And so hang with me again this week. The law, we want us to look at the nature of the law of Christ. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is that the law of Christ is a law of love. That the law of Christ is is a law of love. I want you to notice how our passage is bookended this morning. And what you're going to see is that love has always been the aspiration of the law. That the law never existed simply to be obeyed. The law existed to provoke us to the love of God. The the law existed always aspiring for a people that so loved God, so were deeply enamored by God, so zealous for god that they lived according to the character of god and lived according to the holiness of god so look at how our passage is bookended verse 2 says what speak to all the congregation of the people of israel and say to them you shall be holy for the lord your god is for i the lord your god am holy That if we were going to summarize the book of Leviticus with a theme verse, I think I mentioned this last week, this is the verse. This is what all of Leviticus is about. It's how the people of God can reflect the character of their God. How the people of God can be holy as God is holy. But there's a key word, and he repeats it throughout the passage, and it is the word, your, your. That I am your God. That I'm not the God of all the other nations. I'm not the God of all the other peoples. I'm not a God at a distance. I'm not a God at arm's length. I'm yours. I'm in your midst. I, I dwell in the middle of all of your tents. My, my tabernacle is there. My presence is there. My holiness is there. My glory is there. My protection is there. My provision is there. I am there because, because, because I am your God. So this is a statement of what? This is a statement of love. This is a statement of love. That before he gets into all these other things, remember when we looked at Exodus chapter 20, the very first time in the Bible that we read of God's love is where? It's in the middle of the Ten Commandments. In the middle of the Ten Commandments. That the aspiration of the law has always been the love of the people for their God. That they would see how great their God is, see how glorious their God is, see how how personal their God is. And that they would be moved not by, by some external factor, not by some obligatory obedience, but by a passion. By a passion for a God that is so good to them. By a passion for a God that is so great to them. That God's people were supposed to look like him. After all, he was their God. He was, they were to be holy the way that he was holy. But this was to be the natural outworking of their love for him. Of their desire for him. Because all of us know, you become like that which you love, don't you? You become like that which you love. Now look at verse 18, the bookend here. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love Your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. This is where Jesus is quoting when when he says there's a second is just like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is literally quoting directly from Leviticus 19, 18. That because they love God and because they reflect the character of God, what is the expectation? The expectation is, is that they are to love their neighbor too. Why? Why? He says, Because I am the Lord. Because I am the Lord. Why do you love your neighbor? You love your neighbor because I am the Lord why will you protect the sojourner and the people that are passing through? Why will you leave some of your crops for the aliens that come into the land? Why will you leave some for the poor? Why will you help out one another? You will do it because I am the Lord. I am the Lord, your God, and I have helped you. That is my character. That is my nature. That is who I am. And because you are going to be holy as I am holy, because you are going to be a reflection of my nature, you are going to love other people the way that I love other people. You are going to care for and provide and protect and defend because I protect and provide and defend. It's my nature that God's people were always intended to be a reflection of God's character. And God, it's God's character to love people. Now, these two categories should sound quite familiar to you, right? Like These are the two categories that Jesus says when he's asked about the greatest commandments in all the law. And you remember what he says about them, right? He says it's on these two commandments to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is just like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's on these two commandments that all of the other commandments hang. Do you remember him saying that? That's the law of Christ. That's the essence of the law of Christ. That the essence of the law of Christ is not a list of things that you are supposed to do. The essence of the law of Christ, the nature of the law of Christ, is a law of love. A love for God. A love for one another. That in essence, in essence, it is an obedience in love. Now, last week we looked at Galatians chapter 5 and we were trying to see the difference between the civil ceremonial and the moral law. Remember? And and do you remember what we said? What we said was is that if we actually tried to perform the ceremonial law or the civic law now so that God will draw near to us, so that God will accept us, so that God will take pleasure. Remember what we said? We said that that's actually blasphemy. Remember that? And and we quoted from Galatians chapter 5 where it says that you have been severed from Christ. That if you accept circumcision, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Well, I want us to pick up two verses later in verse 6 this morning so that we can understand what's happening now. That what we can see right after that is that he shows us what right, worshipful, rather than blasphemous law-keeping looks like. That he explains to us the nature of if we accept circumcision, if we live by these ceremonial laws, we are bringing offense to God and blaspheming God. But So he pivots and he says, but this is what it ought to look like. This is what it ought to look like. Look at verse 6. I have it on the screen here. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. That's the law of Christ. The law of Christ is faith working through love. That is, it's, love, it's loving Jesus so enthusiastically that it changes your disposition toward others and your disposition to Christ. It's having jealousy in your life eradicated because you don't need all the other things. You are so intensely satisfied in Christ. It's not needing to lie so that you make yourself look better in the presence of others because Jesus has already validated you. Jesus has already shown you your value. And your disposition toward Jesus is that he is all you want and he is all you need. It's having no need in your life for sexual immorality and the pleasure that it brings into your life because you take pleasure fully in Christ. That if you don't have anything else, if you don't have anybody else, that you have Christ and Christ is enough. That is finding yourself fully satisfied in Jesus so that now your faith is working through love. Not just your faith working, not just your faith doing, and it's not just you loving. It's your faith working through love. You see, typically we kind of have this versus attitude, right? When it comes to faith and love, work in love. That Typically, what I found is most people are either worker people or love people. They're work people or they're love people. In, in the famous Bible study, you have Martha, the worker. You have Mary, the lover, right? You, you, you have the spirit people and the truth people. And there's this this... Yeah, there's one group of people that are like, I just got to do, I got to keep working, I got to keep trying, I got to keep laboring, I got I to gotta keep sweating, I got to keep waking up early, and if, I, if things are going bad, I'll tell you what I did, I didn't work hard enough, I got to wake up early, I got to get up early, I got to work harder, I got to do more, more people got to be helped, more people got to be served, more people got to be cared for. And what happens? Their soul dies. Their soul dies. Because they were always working from the outside in. They were always busy, and they equated busyness with love. But internally, there was no passion. Internally, there was no enthusiasm. Internally, there was no zeal. That the spiritual part of the person was always languishing. The spiritual part of the person was always starving. Internally, there was a desert, while on the exterior, they were trying to be a fountain. And fountains in the middle of deserts, without a source, run dry. But then you have love people, right? Well, we just got to love. They sit there and they talk about love. They write essays on love. They write poems about love. They sing songs about love, but they still stay sitting there. They still stay sitting there. And, and, and here's what Paul would say. Here's what Paul would say is love without works is not love. And works without love is not worship. That it takes both of these things coming together in your life. That it has to be works from love. That your faith is working through love. That this work in your life is an offering of worship only when it comes from a fountain of passion and energy and zeal inside of you. And this is why the law of Christ is so far superior in every way to the moral law of Moses that the law of Christ is not just about what you do. It's about who you love. And it's not just about who you love. It's about what you do. It brings these things together in concert with one another so that they are able to work out in a Christian's life and the kingdom of God advances and the soul of the person thrives. That it's a pathway to joy, not an obstacle, the way that the Old Testament law was. That the Old Testament law was always accusing, it was always accursing, it was always calling you to do, but it was bringing about no change in your heart. And so the Old Testament law had a way of sucking the life out of the people of God. This is what I see in the church today. You know, it's, it's common, it's common today to hear a young man brag, brag as though it's something to be proud of, about being unable and unwilling to commit to someone. You heard this? It, 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 there, there is a, a boastfulness. No, I, I just play the field, you know? Oh, man, I'm not, you're, not, you're not saddling this stallion. You know what I'm saying? And it, become, it becomes a point of pride in this. And what does he say? What he's saying is there's too much fun to be had. There's too much joy for me to find. I'm not going to commit myself to a singular person. It's also common to have young couples. And they'll say, well, we're not having kids. We're just not going to have kids. It's not because we can't have kids. not because we're struggling to have kids. We're just, we're just not going to have children. And I'm not, I'm not trying to like berate you or, or, or overbear your conscience. But here's the thought. We just have places we want to see. We have things that we want to do. We want to just live our life. We, in other words, we don't want to be held back by children. We don't want to be held back in our careers by children. We don't want to be held back as a family by children. It's the same message, just in a different light. It's the exact same thing. I, the way I hear people talk about Jesus. Why is it that we always push our commitment to Jesus to the next season of our life? It doesn't matter what season you're in. You're in high school, I'm going to get serious about Jesus when I graduate. You graduate, I'm going to get serious about Jesus after college. After college, I'm going to get serious about Jesus when I I get married. Then I'm going to get serious about Jesus when I have kids. And then I'm going to get serious about Jesus when I'm financially established. And Then I'm going to get serious about Jesus when I'm an empty nester. And then I'm going to get serious about Jesus when I finally have time and I'm able to retire. It's always the next season. It's always one season further down the road. Then I'm going to get serious about Jesus. Why is that? Why is that? It's because Jesus feels like an encroachment upon our lives It feels like Jesus is going to suck the fun out of all of our lives. That this commitment, this call to love, we understand it that it brings constraint in our lives. And you're right. Love always brings constraints into your lives. Love always means that there are some things in your life that you don't get to be a part of because you have responsibility to someone else. You have responsibility to a church. You have responsibility to a wife, a husband. You have responsibility to children. You have responsibility to to a a position. Love always brings constraint into your life, but there is a lie that is only a half truth and it's the only side that our generation is telling you, brothers and sisters, because though love brings constraint into your life, love is also a pathway to joy in your life a pathway to joy in your life it brings greater constraints sure but it brings greater love it brings greater love that yes yes Loving a singular person is difficult. Loving a singular person limits your options. Loving a singular person means that you are excluded from some relationships. But you get to know a depth and a richness and a, and a comfort and a vulnerability and a passion and a power that those who play the field can never know. I've said to buy enough, gra- uh, enough de- deathbeds to learn that. That at your deathbed you're not going to want a hundred lovers. At your deathbed, you're going to want one man or one woman that stood by your side for decades holding your hand. You know why? It's a greater joy. It's a greater joy. And young couples can travel and they can see Europe and they can... They can go to the bahamas and they can live footloose and fancy free but i'm telling you one day one day when thanksgiving rolls around you're going to want that house filled with laughter and stories of the childhoods of your children and you can keep delaying the obedience to jesus you can keep passing it down to the next season of your life because it will constrain you but brothers and sisters it is a constraint of joy a constraint of passion. This is the work of the law of Christ in our loves. Have you tasted the wonderful love of God? There is only one response, and it is your love. Do you desire deep and durable joy in your love? There is only one pathway, and it is love. Love your, the Lord your God with all of your mind, with all of your heart, with all of your strength, and then express it to other people. The next, the next. Nature of the law of Christ that I want you to see is that the law of Christ is a law of holiness. The law of Christ is a law of holiness. And when I say holiness, I'm not merely talking about saying the right things and doing the right things and going to the right places and having your clothes ironed just right and your shirt tucked in and your hair just like you like it with the, you know, independent Baptist, you know, part or whatever it is you got going on in your life. Like, we, we have this image in our minds of what holiness is, but it's not the same image that the Bible has. What, what I'm talking about is something that is far deeper. As I mentioned earlier, the whole book of Leviticus can be summed up there in verse 2 when it says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That, in other words, that living according to the law of God is living according to the same character of, as God. Living according to the law of God is living as the same character of God. That is, that holiness is defined for us right here. Holiness is pure obedience. Pure obedience. That's not just doing the right things. It's doing the right things for the right reasons. It's not just saying the right things. Is say the right things because you have the right thoughts. You have the right things stored up in your heart, and out of the overflow of your heart, the right things then come spilling out of you. That it's it's not just giving, it's cheerful giving. It's not just going, it's joyful going. It's not just serving, it's it's delightful pleasure pleasure serving. That it's it's being pure in motive and proper in attitude and patient in re, in in reward. Now, if you're like me, you hear that and you think, oh, mercy. Oh, mercy, do I fall short of that, you know? Because this isn't good news. That if the law is calling us to live according to the incorruptible character of God, the problem with that is, is that my character is utterly corrupted. That hardly ever do I do things out of a completely pure heart. I'm just letting you in and I wish it was better than that, but it's just not. Hardly ever do I say things in my mind be perfectly singing kumbaya to the Lord and my heart be in perfect sync and there's no anxiety and there's no no desire in me to go home and watch the football game instead of just hanging out having another conversation. I wish that was the case. But my character is corrupted. And so the call for me to live according to the incorruptible character of God is a lethal call on my life. It's yet another way that, that we're being called, and that the law is accusing us and accursing us and condemning us. And yet, this is another way in which the law of Christ tr- trumps in every way the law of Moses. That the law of Christ doesn't just call you to be holy. That's the flaw of the Old Covenant Law. That's the flaw of the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses was pure in and of itself, but the problem was it was given out to impure people who had no ability to obey it, no ability to follow through on it. And so it was always calling and always calling and condemning as a result. But the Law of Christ is far greater than that. That it doesn't just call you to to holiness, it makes you holy. That the Law of Christ doesn't just call you to holiness, It makes you holy. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 5. He's just said that if we're going to obey Christ in a way that honors him and doesn't blast him, that we must exhibit a faith working through love, that we must not just serve our neighbor as we would serve ourselves, but we must also love them. But the question becomes for us, how? How can we do this? How can we be holy? How can we be pure in our obedience in the way that God is holy? And this is where we get to that famous passage in verses 16 through 23. It says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Against such things, there is no law. Against such things, there is no law. Do you see what the Spirit accomplishes in our lives? Do you see this? If I were to ask you to describe to me the character of God, how would you describe the character of God? Now, this is what the law is calling from us, right? The law is calling out of us to live according to the character of of God, to be holy as I am holy. Now, if I were to ask you how to describe the character of God, what words would you use? My bet, if I were a betting man, and I'm not anymore, is that you would use words like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does that not sound like the character of God? That's the character of God. And what is the Holy Spirit at work in my life and in your life at accomplishing? Transforming my character into God's character. Transforming my nature into God's nature. Transforming who I am into who Jesus is. That the Spirit is actually at work in my life, imprinting upon my heart, imprinting upon my heart the very character of God, rotting as Andrew read from Jeremiah 31, writing the tablets of the law upon the tablets of my heart because I am His people and He is my God. And so it is literally imprinting, the Holy Spirit is imprinting upon my heart, the very heart of God Himself, that the law of Christ is God's character written upon the hearts of His people. It is the Spirit applying the moral law to my heart. This is how the moral law carries forward, but in a greater way. That now the moral law is not given to us simply in a book, it's not given to us simply on tablets of stone. It is imprinted upon my heart and imprinted upon your heart. That we're no longer marked by external things, we're not marked by a circumcision of the flesh anymore. We're not marked by civic laws and ceremonial laws and wearing shirts of a single fabric and having an ethnic... We're not marked by that stuff anymore. Now, we're marked by the very character of God himself. We're marked by a... Pure holiness, not an external righteousness, a pure holiness. Holiness that actually looks like that of christ goodness and love and patience and gentleness and mercy. So I wonder, as we see these things coming to bear in our lives so that faith is now working through us in love, what do we do when our, when our obedience doesn't feel joyful anymore? You ever been there? Maybe that's in the back of your mind the whole way. Am I not a Christian if my obedience is not joyful? Again, this is the flesh and the the spirit. This is the conversation, the exact conversation that, that Paul is having here that because we are still fallen people living in a fallen world, that even those of us who have the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives find seasons of our lives in which our obedience is not zealous anymore, where our obedience is not energetic anymore. What do we do in those times? What do we do in those times when we are, we are law-keeping, but our law-keeping is not in any way coming from the passion of our hearts? Well, the answer is not to focus on your law-keeping. The answer is not to focus on your law-keeping. That is the exact wrong thing for you to do. The answer, the answer is to focus on your relationship with Jesus. The answer is to focus on your relationship with Jesus. That is, I think there's two things that you should do. I think on one hand, you should confess your sins. You should confess your sins. I don't know that there's enough confession happening in the church today. When was the last time you went and poured out your guts before God? When was the last time that you went to a brother or sister in Christ and just confessed your sins to them? James says that this is a call to freedom in Christ. Freedom, accountability, joy. When was the last time that you went and all this, these things that are bringing division between you and God, these things that are bringing distance between you and God, What? when was the last time you went and you just confessed all of them? You see, your sins will not cause God to leave you, but God will allow your affections to to cool off as a result go confess your sin and then and then what's the second thing that we can do it is to pursue and seek a fresh discovery of christ when was the last time that you learned something about jesus that left you standing just stupefied when was the last time that you learned something new about the heart of Christ, or the nature of Christ, or the mercy of Christ, or the doctrine of Christ? Or the, When was the last time that you left something and your only response was not to argue, it was not to debate, it was not to think it to death, it was to raise up your arms and worship God? In other words, in other words, confess sins, confess sins, seek fresh discovery of Christ, or Walk by the Spirit, not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the same thing. Mortify the sins in your life. Mortify the flesh in your life. Put to death all of those things in you that bring division between you and God. And then in the Spirit run after the holiness of Christ, the glory of Christ. Because what is the work of Christ in the lives of sinners? It is the conviction of sin and the revelation of Jesus. When you were first saved... When you were first saved, was there any hesitation in your obedience? When you first, for the first time, discovered grace, was there anything less than passion when God called you to go and to serve? My guess is no. What was happening in your life in that moment? The confession of sin and the discovery of Christ. Let's go back there, brothers and sisters. Let's go back there. One final thing about the law of Christ that I want you to see this morning is that the law of Christ is a call to action. It's a call to action. That is, Leviticus 19 understands that your devotion to God is to have practical, real-world ramifications. In other words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul even says the same thing when, he, when he's framing this up. You shall work, should be your faith working through love, and the whole law is fulfilled How it is fulfilled by loving your neighbor as yourself. That holiness was never meant to be passive, but active. It's interesting how Paul applies the law of Christ in Galatians, isn't it? That at the end of this section, in chapter 6, verse 2, he says what? Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's, that phrase, that's where I get that phrase that I've been using all morning. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In, in, in other words, the way that we live out God's law, Christ's law in our lives, this, this transformation, this application of the character of God in our lives, the way that we live that out, by loving one another. By bearing one another's burdens. By restoring one another when we fall into sin. By ministering to one another when we feel like everything's falling apart. By supporting each other when it feels like we might faint and pass out. That is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole law. But Jesus as the fulfillment of the whole law has saved us so that now actively, presently, in the here and now, we might fulfill the law. How do we fulfill the law? What did Jesus say he came to do? He came to inaugurate his kingdom. He came that his kingdom might come. That, that the kingdom of God may be the same on earth as it is in heaven right and do you know how that happens do you know how that happens it happens through us it happens through us caring for one another and loving one another and ministering to one another it happens when we take the character of God and begin to live it out among one another in a way that is identifiable as the kingdom of God what did Jesus say this is how they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another It is the fulfillment of the law. It is the advancement of the kingdom. It is God's glory being spread to the ends of the earth. See, the law of Christ in this way is a call to action. It's a call to action. It's a call to restore others when they fall into sin and to bear burdens and to love each other sacrificially so that we can fulfill the law. J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, he says that the clearest identifier of a person and whether or not they know God is whether or not they have energy for God. And the clearest way that we know whether or not we have energy for God is by how we treat each other, by how we help each other, by how we bear burdens for one another, by how we serve one another. As I I thought about this, as I thought about the fulfillment of the law of Christ and bearing burdens, you know what I started thinking about? I started thinking about a lot of you. A lot of you. You know, it's not uncommon for me to call our widows. And for them, me to ask them what we can help them with and for them to name somebody to me that's already helped them out that I didn't even know anything about this past week is the case in point, I called Sandra Goodson just to check on her, just to tell her that I loved her, just to see what was going on. She said, she said well, Cody, I, I would tell you what I needed, but the only thing that I needed is my fence. A tree had fallen over my fence, and Tim Allen, one of the deacons there, he called to check on me, and I, and I told him about the fence, and I told him not to worry about it, but he, he showed up, and he had all the parts, he had all the stuff, and, he just, and Cody, it looks, it looks like brand new. That's fulfilling the law of Christ. That's the character of God imprinted upon someone's heart now, now advancing another generation forward, going forward. I think about Stacey Upton. She has spent countless hours here in the last three weeks working in our children's ministry, countless hours, redoing the the Joe Brown building, just investing in how she can get the right teachers in the right spots. Andrea, I've seen her do a lot of the same things. Nobody knows that she's there. A lot of times I go home, Stacy's still here working. Andrea's still here working. You know what that is? That is fulfilling the law of Christ. Fulfilling the law of Christ. What about Jason and Donna bringing Mila into their family? Bringing Mila into our family? This precious little girl has a mama and a daddy now? And do you know what That is? That's the kingdom of God coming. That's the kingdom of God coming. That's the character of God being made obvious through his people to a watching world. Do you have energy for God? Do you have energy for him? I wonder this morning if the law of Christ is calling you out to recommit yourself to the Lord to re-up your commitment and your desire to confess your sins and to seek fresh discovery in God, to to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. This morning, would you respond? Let me pray for us. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.